Hello, welcome to the Quad Park Podcast. Beautiful day to start up a revolution. Molotov cocktails, martini shotgun shells. Wild, 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 wild one. God forbid the cops get called. I say the more the merrier inside this room. This is one of those times that I have made a huge mistake and forgot to launch my recorder. And um, it was 40 minutes ago that we have been having a great old time. And you will never hear that. Sorry about that, crackpot listeners. Uh, But we can try to bring you something to salvage something. We were just talking. We had started with Plantation America. And we talked about Under an Iron Crown which is the latest fiction title to be published. Um, And then we got to the really important subject, which was the um, sexual eligibility of the two girls from the Red Scare podcast. And my personal problem with it, which is that those girls get paid a lot of money to podcast. They get paid a lot of money. I think they get tens of thousands of dollars per month. There's those two girls, plus they have a helper. So just imagine what Crackpot Industries could do with that kind of money. All we need is a couple of Scarecrow girls to, um, <laughs> to uh, that's what they should be called instead of Red Scare Girls. They should be called those Scarecrow I, Girls. Yeah, you know, I didn't think, I thought the one was a dude. She's so thin that I doubt she can even menstruate or have children. She looks like a concentration camp survivor. And... I found it really disturbing that she was affecting these like really weird, sexy poses because I thought it was a dude. Because I, I saw these pictures on uh, the Adam Smith podcast, I'm like, what the hell is this weird dude like spreading its legs? I mean, there's like no, there, this is the end. If that's what young men are into today, this is the end. Okay, that, that's it. I mean, you bring up the practical consideration, which is that. I, they're both really thin, and that there's that's not a good way to uh, gestate a child, you know. And they're both, I think they both smoke, and, um, you know, so these are practical considerations. I don't know what to say, because I don't want to sound catty, but yeah, no, I wouldn't trade places with either one of them. Um, although, it, yeah, I don't think I should, it's not really appropriate to say that. I don't really, I'm not sure what I would say about those girls. You know, they have a big fan base and they have big checking accounts. And that's the main, let's put it this way. The only thing I'm jealous of is their, uh, 
their bankrolled podcast. All right. Well, <laughs> you know, if that's the price you got to pay, I, I mean, <laughs> thank God for poor. You know, it, it's just really, that just really shocked me that there's sex appeal there. That, 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 and that, 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 that blew my mind. And okay, that, so. Kind of, well, what kind of does great about it is that it's men on the right, too, who are thirsty for these girls and knowing that they're, um, you know, leftists. And, and that's part of their appeal is that they are sort of anti-feminists at times or um, otherwise kind of on the edge of acceptability, according to the leftist worldview. And so then they, they get attention from uh, from people on the right. But they do get attention for uh, their appearances also. Um, so that's something I feel kind of proud of that I've never made my appearance public and people still listen here. So that's kind of cool for me. Okay. But they we, are, I do got... think that the blonde one is very pretty and they're both uh, yeah. very thin and that's considered a great accomplishment for a woman. So, hey. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, 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 blonde, the blonde was passable. She, she looks somewhat unhealthy. Okay, like I said, I would, I would, but probably not a second time unless she begged me, okay? You know so, what's interesting uh, is that the blonde one is just as skinny as the dark-haired one, but the dark-haired one, oh. I think, has bigger bones, so she just look, she looks bonier. That's an example of big boned right there. So the she, dark-haired one serves no function because she doesn't have any long hair that you can spitefully leave pasted to the side of her head because she looks like Keith Richards. Okay. <laughs> uh, so that, that's all I'm saying. Okay. That was, uh, sorry, Lynn, yeah. that that was a little bit. Crazy, but. That's right. She does look like Keith Richards. I think that's accurate. I think <sighs> her hair's gotten longer, but anyway, yeah. So the red scare girls, the scarecrow girls, they, uh, they're not going to be breeding the next generation of warriors. All right. But maybe that's, you know, so maybe this serves, a, maybe this is kind of like a sterility sink where you could basically corral all your soy boys and get them not to reproduce. Because if any of these guys can make enough money, some bitch will have their baby, okay, if they can make enough money. So if you could make sure that, you know, so maybe that's a good thing. It's kind of like a soak-off uh, eugenics uh, strategy. Uh, soak-off attack is something from wargaming where you, like, uh, you basically send a unit into combat that you know is not going to win just so it'll weaken a unit that you want to attack with a with a better unit later on, okay? So you kind of like the, the Persians sending in the – Arabian and Egyptian infantry to soften up the Spartans before they, uh, you know, send in their crack troops. It would be similar to that. So, I, you know, maybe it serves a purpose. I apologize. Okay. No, you don't have to. You don't have to apologize. Yeah, I, 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 I do. I apologize to those girls because, you know, that, that's I shouldn't be picking them. But if you're a guy that's into those girls, please unsubscribe. Okay. <laughs> trying to stay under 500 anyhow so because right. we're afraid maybe. Once we hit 500, we're, we're going to go away the myth of the 20th century and be stuck on bitch shoots. So. Uh, but what brought this up was we were talking about Under an Iron Crown, and I, uh, I don't really remember writing hardly any of it because I had a fever the whole time. I wrote it, but it was about a loser Iron Age 
rent a king that was like co-king and a couple of shithole villages and stuff like that. You know, I just remember what kind of frame of mind I got in for it, got into for it. And, uh, you know, I, well, I just somehow coming out at the visuals of these chicks, just like, no, I mean, he couldn't even send those bitches to go haul water for him. I mean, what? I, 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 I mean, maybe they could get a job oiling up his slave girl. I don't know. You know, <laughs> it's like useless women. You can't, they can't haul water. I, I, I just, okay. So. I remember reading Anne of Green Gables, and I think it was Anne of Green Gables, and the protagonist is this little girl who's really skinny, and she has these, she remembers, I remember she described her arm about how the width of her elbow was bigger than the width of her arm above and below the elbow. And how some friend of hers had uh, dimples in her arms. When she straightened her arms, she had dimples in her elbows. And how she wished she could have dimples in her elbows. And I don't know, that's, that stuck with me. But, you know, I'm not, I don't think that. I think the thing is that most women are, not most, but so many women are significantly overweight that there's this, like, rebound where you think you have to be with this really skinny type of girl or the girls want to be that skinny. And, you know, these girls suffer to look like that, particularly the blonde girl. She is always um, posting about being hungry and (laughs) strategies to eat less and, and she hates it because uh, people think that the other one is skinnier. But anyway, I spent 10, year, 10 years now on a 105-pound psycho bitch. I mean, she was a total psychopath. I never knew if she was going to kill me, stab me in my sleep or whatever. I mean, so, yeah, I mean, some little girls can be cute. But you know what? She, she hit like a 160-pound man. Okay, she had curves. Uh, she, she wasn't like some emaciated rail. You know, you could. She still. She looked different than a dude. She didn't look like an anemic dude, uh, as far as her build went. But you know, we're we're very far. You know, the Paleolithic beauty standard for a woman is is big, is plump. Okay, the agrarian beauty standard is pale. That's a chick that doesn't have to work, that stays inside. The industrial beauty standard is tan because that's the bitch whose husband doesn't have to work and they could spend all their time at the beach outside getting a tan while all the other chicks are slaving away in factories and sweatshops. The post-industrial information age beauty standard is just skinny uh, because flapper girls from the 20s were not skinny. They were not large-breasted typically, but when you look at these chicks, they're a woman that would be recognized as a mature woman Throughout most of history and prehistory, uh, definitely different build than a guy uh, it, where you still had, you know, uh, hip to waist ratio and they generally did not have shoulders that were wider than their hips. OK, uh, so so you got these four different beauty standards still exist. We have primitive segments of our population, including me. They're just still into the earlier. Basically, every brother out there is into the Paleolithic slash agrarian beauty standard because he wants her as pale as possible and he wants her plump okay you know so you have that but uh in all ages the healthy the healthy woman is going to stick out as attractive in all these ages uh, 
you know, if she's physically active, you know, and, and really healthy, physically active women are a whole lot smaller than men. But one thing I noticed in the supermarket is the fat couples that came in, there's not much difference in their size and, and their weight. The fat women and the fat men, the, the men would be a little bit bigger than the women generally. Sometimes the women were a little bit bigger. But the bodybuilding couples that would come in shopping for the yogurts instead of the fat fucks coming in shopping for their donuts – there was a huge size difference where the guy is like 190 pounds with all this muscle and the chick's like 105 pounds and is shaped really nice, really good looking, really fit girl. Uh, I think the reason why you have this, why you're looking for chicks that are 105 pounds but look like they're teenage GIs that survived the Bataan Death March, uh, I think the reason why you've got that attraction going on is not because because that fit girl, that's blowback against the whole fat thing, okay? Nobody can really look at her and say, eh, not good looking. The girl I'm talking about that was in there, they're, they're both amateur competition bodybuilders, okay? And, that you know, these people were like really handsome, shapely people, okay? And there's almost, like the dude's like 60% bigger than the girl. Uh, and this is what you see with bodybuilding companies couples like this fitness couples you'll see the size difference i think the reason why guys are looking for this totally emaciated looking scarecrow is because the guys themselves that aren't fat they can't stand fat people they're just they're just little twerps they're not strong guys they're not physically really they're either mentally weak or they're physically weak. Now, I have a very good friend, Rick, and I'll tell you, okay, we, we did Rick's podcast. Always been his entire life an immensely physically strong guy. Mentally, he's weak, and he'll tell you that. He he always has been. That's why he get in bad situations, like getting enslaved by some gangbanger that would hold him in a house at gunpoint and make him grow his pot for him, because Rick's mentally weak. I love the guy, but he's mentally weak, and he'll tell you he likes really skinny chicks because it makes him feel stronger. Even though the guy could break my back if we wrestled, okay, the guy's immensely strong. He's still mentally weak, so he's, he needs that really emaciated-looking chick, okay? And if you're physically weak, my theory is probably the same thing. So I think we're talking about, like, you know, fit guys that are mentally weak and then unfit guys that are physically weak that are just attracted to something that when they grab a hold of it, they're going to feel strong by default. Because this thing is near death. You know, this is like, you know, Zombieville. Okay, so I'm kind of off that inverted soapbox. Sorry. No, that's good. Uh, some good stuff there. And hopefully it will lose some listeners for us. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to read the blurb from for Under an Iron Crown that is from Nathaniel Lucas. Under an Iron Crown is a fever dream of the untethered id of the European barbarian, written like a prose translation of an unknown Anglo-Saxon epic poem, Lafond, through a soft-headed biographer, contacts the past to bring us a man without ties, a king without a people, his deeds, loyalties, women, and weapons, and above all, his soul. And so we talked about this in the lost tapes here, but I really like it. I think it's um, really touching and kind of opens a window into 
the life of a hero king, a king who never held on to more than he could defend himself, you know, his, his, with his own weapons and his own strength. He was not an emperor or a Caesar or anything like that. You had him tra travel a bit, going through Europe and Northern Africa. He was, he was a king of a village in Africa for a while, and so it's very illustrative. I know Bob right now. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Kirk oh, King, man. Kirk King with, with a Negro, you know, uh, of an African village. Essentially, it's my job for four years. So I, 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 but I don't remember writing any of this other than the parts where El Sprague de Camp's ghost, who I think has a stroke at like a, a yoga class in Philadelphia, ends up in a, in a crypt with this king who realizes his slave girl has told him that his men are going to assassinate him in the morning. Because he's getting too old. So he's having a conversation with this sissy biographer. Who, it's a tragedy that Elsprog de Camp essentially became the bibliographer of heroic fantasy for the 20th century and the biographer of the chief author of heroic fantasy, Robert E. Howard. Uh, because the, the guy was a faggot. Okay, him and his wife and some other intellectual wrote this book. They constantly about Robert E. Howard, Dark Valley Destiny, his biography. Excellent biography, but every 10 pages they talk about what it's a shame it was that Howard didn't become a CPA instead of becoming a writer. And then what what bad choices he made and what a bad writer he was. And but these this guy made his money off of Robert E. Howard and posthumous collaborations. He'd have been nothing without Robert E. Howard. So when Wrath of Nine on Twitter suggested I write Conan's biography, I was like, well, I can't write something I can't sell. That's a promise I made to myself. I'm not going to do any fan fiction. It's a heavily protected property. But I figured the angle would be getting El Sprague de Camp as a ghost biographer of, you know, uh, a uh, – a dark age warlord of the type that Howard wrote a lot in a lot of his historic fiction and, and wrote in a lot of his fantasy fiction too. And he always seemed to be reaching for this hero King small scale template. And he eventually takes Conan and puts him in that spot where he's a barbarian guy from a tribe of whom he's the only member of that tribe in a kingdom that he's the King and he's totally alienated. He's still a small scale guy. Um, uh, and, you know, he, he can't outwit any of the other kings and and politicians and stuff like that. He's still this small-scale guy. So that's kind of the compromise I I did on it. And uh, I hope it's good because I don't really remember much of what's in it. It's very good. And, um, and it's reasonably priced. It's under $10. And I think that uh, it's amazing that Ellis Brogdon Camp and others kind of missed the symmetry of Howard's life, you know, where he, uh, yeah, you know, he was, he could have followed his dad and been a doctor, or he could have done anything, um, but he sort of gave himself up to writing and gave us this great gift, and it's incredibly, gosh, this is a really money-grubbing podcast, which I don't usually do, but, you know, considering the fact that Howard made to camp uh, a very wealthy man you would think there would be more more appreciation there 
It wasn't. They had the knives out, and it was jealousy. I could tell it was jealousy. By the way, I did write the book when I had a high fever for eight days. I don't know how many. I don't even remember how many days it took me to write it, but it wasn't the whole eight days. I'm pretty sure. Um, the thing with Howard was, is he didn't want to live from the time he was a boy, but his mother really fought hard to keep him alive because he was a really sickly boy. And his parents had him in these storytelling games where they would tell stories together. He had a, a cook and a washerwoman that worked for his family who told him stories. So while he was waiting for his mother to die so that he could commit suicide, he decided to have a writing career. And he wrote as a way to pass the time until his mother died. And then he would kill himself because his mother had fought so hard to keep him alive. And this is this is explicit in the biography of this family in which they basically just attack the Howards on a 1960s uh, pop psychology basis. Okay. You know, I mean, it's just, uh, it was a real, they really thought it was disgusting that Howard wanted to continue to live with his parents and his parents wanted to live with him. In a lot of ways, that biography can be seen as an attack on what's left of the American family. It was, it's only a three person nuclear family. Uh, struggling to survive through the depression and uh, you know, with older parents and, you know, uh, uh, health problems, you know, with the mother and a child and you know, all they can do is attack what's left of that family structure. And these three people were trying heroically to stay together as a family, you know, I mean, and Howard devoted his significant writing income to, to healthcare for his mother. And to a car for the family so that he could drive his parents around. You know, yeah, he wasn't a, a lot of pressure on an only child. I, I wouldn't envy any only child. And, you know, knowing what he went through and how he ultimately ended his life, it was not easy for him. That was my... Uh, that was my basically the torch that I took into writing Under an Iron Crown. And I... I wanted to try to do something as Conan-esque as possible, like an improbably broad adventuring career in different areas where most Iron Age kings would, they'd never be 60 miles outside of where they were born. Okay. Uh, so I chose the period of the German invasions when Saxons were invading, Jutes and Saxons were invading England, and Vandals and Visigoths were invading Africa. And I put this guy in that mix because that's when Iron Age kings were traveling a lot. They were fighting. They were seeing a lot of different things. And uh, it informed their idea of kingship once they got pushed back into traditional Germanic areas and Gaelic areas. And I put one historic character in there who I believe fell against Belisarius. Belisarius is a he's going to be a hero for any Greek Orthodox guys out there uh, who ends up being assassinated by the uh, Byzantine emperor, the Roman emperor that he fought for. But I believe he was the general in the field that defeated Odokar, the Lombard chieftain. So I do remember deciding to place this character who I think I called him call. Did I call him? Did I call him call? Yeah. You named him call. Yep. Okay. Because that was a prototypical barbarian king name that Howard was using. And I could, uh, the, the brief, reading i did on that period it looks like that could have been something uh 
uh, th- that he picked out historically. And so I end up putting him as like an auxiliary king. Th- th- this would happen with Indians a lot in another like period tumultuous period in the eastern woodlands you might have an alliance of tribes where some of the chiefs only show up with 10 guys but they're still given a spot at the table because they're chiefs and they have this status okay so this is the kind of king that i envisioned more of a chieftain okay but would have aspirations to kingship and and would eventually get an iron crown uh somewhere in great britain and be fated to uh, not hold on to it for long because of uh, political circumstances. So uh, I can't say I remember much about writing it except being pissed off at the camp and, and just wanting to, uh, you know, hold him hostage as I wrote this. Yeah, he deserves far worse, but he, uh, (laughs) he's there. Um, Well, that reminds me of, you know, if we can go back to the Plantation America question was Cornwall. So everybody has heard of Wales as this sort of like semi-separatist um, little ancient conglomeration of people there. Um, but once upon a time, England was lots of these little places and Cornwall is one. And we were talking about, um, oh, the book about Scots banished to the plantations, the American plantations, and um, a little bit about the numbers involved. And, well, um, the, yeah. Wales. Wales is the first, there's four Gaelic regions. Cornwall, with heavy ties to Brittany, the people that were still Gales on the other side of the channel. Uh, Wales, Scotland, and Ireland. Okay, so once all of England is solidified, the first place that has to be conquered is Wales because it's right in the middle. Okay, it's it's too close to London and the heart, and it's significantly big. It's got its own feudal king. This is done in the 1300s. The Welsh are used to take out the Scots. Okay, originally what became the English longbow was the Welsh bow, made of yew. And though they might not have been Welsh archers, uh, because once the English adopted the longbow, the Welsh mainly served as knife men who would come in and kill downed armored foes that got knocked off their horse. These guys would come up and stab you in the balls and the neck and the eye, okay, with their knives. Uh the what started out as the Welsh bow was actually used to defeat uh, the Scots and William Wallace at Fal- the Battle of Falkirk to avenge the loss at the hands of the Scots at the Battle of Stamford Bridge. Eventually, Robert the Bruce at Bruce at Bannockburn avenges the defeat at Falkirk and occupies part of England, does not conquer England. Uh, and then eventually, through these different wars, uh, Scotland will be subdued over and over again when it rises in rebellion. Uh, in the 1540s and 50s, Cornwall is a separate place. The Cornish people actually have their own revolt against London during the regency of King Henry VIII's son. And I'm thinking that's why this one tax uh, that accrues to the crown prince of uh, of Great Britain or England, uh, I, 
I'm guessing it probably comes from that period because there was a boy prince who wasn't old enough to take the throne when these Welsh guys to or Cornish guys who had their own armories, their own language, their own religious texts. They were Christians, but they had their own versions, their own hymns and everything. They uh, they rose up. They get crushed partially by mercenaries, some of whom are Welsh. And uh, I'm wondering if this tax that Lynn's going to describe maybe had an origin there. I do not know. The tax that I just learned about is that if anybody dies in Cornwall, any property owner in Cornwall dies and they don't have a will in place, their property accrues to the Duke of Cornwall, which is right now it's Prince Charles, and I think it'll be his son after him, William. Um, and this is actually a huge, a huge income source for the crown is the, the rents of these properties in Cornwall. So I, I was surprised I'd never heard of this. And especially knowing that it's it is one of the great income sources uh, for these guys, I told James, and then you said it, that was a real white privilege, <laughs> white right. privilege or Norman okay. privilege. What a pack of parasites! And this uh, this country is actually a significant portion of this country is obsessed with the British royal family. I don't know how much of it, but it's enough to have highly devoted media coverage uh, on the newsstands and in uh, mass electronic media. Uh, so that right there, if you had any doubt that this was founded as a penal colony for slaves, that's it right there. That, you know, there's a significant amount of Americans that wish they were the slaves, these degenerate Norman uh, potentates in England who don't even have a real job to do. Okay, no, they're just there to that you're a slave. This is okay? why something like under an iron crown is so good because this is what it means to be a monarch in the modern imagination where you just have these decrepit people who can barely function and, you know, they spend all day like shaking hands with different people and waving from their cars or whatever. And that's supposed to be what a monarch does when... Um, you know, I, I just much prefer your version of it. <laughs> well, the type of monarch I was writing about was put on the extinction list, and I think it was 1215 or 1216 when I think it was King John signed the Magna Carta, which is a which was the breach of an ages-old trust between the king and his people. That the king's primary job was to defend his people against the oligarchs uh, that was his number one job number two is defending against barbarians people outsiders. from other yeah. outsiders he should be able to negotiate something with other kings okay so this is that's the betrayal right there uh, you, you see it in this vestigial monarchy that that degenerate ultra cuck nation has where they're who whatever passed for states attorneys and uh and England won't even prosecute these gangs of outsiders that ritually abduct and rape uh girls for a month on end and then it's not even a crime because it's okay according to the religion so unfortunately now having a king basically means you're a cucked nation hopefully a new idea of kingship will come up and i think it'll have to come by way of chieftains You'll have to have chiefs before you can end up having kinks. You have to have men. Um, the other Plantation America thing was the Scots 
so the, all these Scots, there's this great book. Uh, it's called Directory of Scots Banished to the American Plantations, 1650 to 1775. Oh, the man who wrote that book is David Dobson, and he is this type of meticulous historian who is tracing individual people back to ships' manifests and things like this. And so, you know, that work is is a particular type of historical preservation and um you know it's valuable especially to genealogists and um and it's valuable for what it is you know a list of real people who were sent as prisoners to to the plantations the colonies um but it's just a it's a floor and it's a very very low floor for the reality of how various varieties of Britons, um, English and Irish and Scots were uh, shipped and sold under various circumstances, whether they were criminals or they were poor or they were criminals because they were poor and so on. From, from what I can tell, r rough numbers right now, it looks like this is no surprise when you see the typical plantation owner having 10 or 12 servants and the big wigs having one or 200. Okay. Of the roughly 3 million and some hundred thousand people that were shipped to this country, it seems like only between 100 and 200,000 came of their own free will uh, for purposes of religious, economic, and political freedom. Now, over half of those people came to New England. And those uh, New England universities that were founded as religious colleges and are now basically the, the fonts of atheism uh, and globalism, that's basically carried the narrative in this country. So people identify with what was a very tiny minority at the most one in ten individuals. Now, in New England, it was one in three. One in three of the people that went to New England were free. The other two were their slaves. In the rest of the country, it was more like one in 30. And then you end up with something that's like one in 12 in the end, uh, I'm, I'm guesstimating right now. Uh, so the, the, the other thing is uh, anybody that, that brings this subject up with their friends, when the term indentured servant or indentured servitude comes up, uh, please keep in mind that those terms did not exist during the period under construction discussion those are terms that were invented after the plantation era uh somewhere between 1865 and 1910 i, f I forget where i uh, where i found the first reference to it but it was post-american civil war first reference to indentured servitude and it's actually looking back at largely willing german immigration uh to this country, which is for the most uh, in the 1800s, which is for the most part outside of the subject that I'm investigating in Plantation America, because most of those people were willing. Yes, some of them were sold as slaves for life. And even though they were really white, they were passed off as Negroes or people of color. OK, it's, which is one place the one drop rule got you which was having people from the Rhinelands sold as Negroes in Louisiana, okay? But those are the minority. The majority of Germans that came post-1804 came of their own free will, okay, and survived their term of servitude. Well, Ben Franklin you know, so. called them swarthy Germans. 
He did. <laughs> well, during Ben Franklin's era, they were not coming of their own free will. They were being sold as cattle. Okay, so again, what, all we have in our history is a snapshot of the tail end, the very tail end of it, what it looked like then. And it's reinforced by Dobson's research and other researchers will only use documentation that exists now. They will not use a source from 1680 that documents 10,000 kids trafficked out of England that year. Okay, because that man's documentation is still not extant because the people who were charged with keeping all these documents were it was the uh, the British government, the crown. They were the very same people who were profiting two fifths of the sale of every individual that went out. Okay, was taken one fifth by the king and one fifth by, uh, you know, by the other government governing entities. So. The very same people, you know, the very same people that sold these people were charged with documenting themselves. So guess what? You you've got a shortage of receipts, particularly when when so many of the people were illegally harvested. So the really shocking this part thing that really still shocks me after all these years that Pennsylvania just threw away everything related to indentured servitude. Yeah, yeah, they just trashed them. <laughs> so. Anyhow, that that's another visitation to to that glorious uh, time in our past. That uh... <laughs> yeah, I I like to hit Plantation America. Something uh, something recently published, which is under an iron crown, and then we talked about the the Red Scare Girls. But I I have some other little stories here. Recently, the people that make Old Bay seasoning. I've never That's tasted McCormick this stuff. Spice. It's the biggest spice company in the world. Well, they are coming out with an Old Bay hot sauce. And boy, all the uh, all the pale faces in Baltimore are thrilled about this. Well, sure. It's a, it's a retro. It's kind of appeals to the retro thing that the small amount of hipsters homesteading in Baltimore, the same people that would drink National Bohemian beer, okay, even though it's a different recipe now to feel like an old school Baltimore person. But most of those Baltimore people no longer live in Baltimore. The people that are going to be buying all that Old Bay hot sauce are going to be living out in Hartford County and Baltimore County, Maryland, because they've literally been chased out of Baltimore. <laughs> people were happy about it. It's really cute. I thought it was cute. I've never tasted it. And I thought it was really cute because just uh, the last time we had talked, you were in the middle of a snack of um, of uh, pork rinds, and you were sprinkling Old Bay and cayenne pepper on your pork rinds. Right. So. Yes. So Old Bay's got a bunch of different types of pepper in it. The distinctive aspect of it is a lot of celery seed. Okay, so that's the okay. you know that's the thing. It seems to separate it from most of the other spice mixes of itself. <laughs> I saw I saw the pictures of all of that plant based meat. Yeah, you know, um, I. Are, how are you on time? Do you think that you have some time? I can cover. Okay, well, there's so there's this ties in with China, but I don't think we'll have time, but to do everything. But anyway, there's this huge pu- uh, push in media, like in you see these stories in the media in print media and like TV where just all of a sudden 
they're covering it as news, quote unquote news, but everybody's covering the same story, like um, how great it, was, it is, uh, huh? It was it was mailed to them, right? You know, so this story is how delicious these fake hamburgers are, and how. Um, good for you they are, and how also good for the environment they are, and blah, blah. It's really disgusting. I mean, I am actually I just disgusted by it. it. You did? What? Why? Okay, even the colonel, who mostly just eats stuff that he kills, heard how healthy this stuff was. No. Okay? And what they did is he bought a kind that's like half meat and then half quinoa or whatever that shit is called with different stuff in it you know so it was uh i could get it down uh it was okay it it tasted all right so they managed to get a good taste profile in it the texture wasn't too bad as long as it's replacing ground meat and you're told that it's really healthy now i've set up doors of this kind of stuff before it's mostly soy based in the freezer section now, in, with frozen meat, you got to realize that warehouses where frozen meat is kept, the frozen meat product is kept in two uh, is kept in one place, but it goes to two separate places in each store. There's stuff that's cataloged as frozen food, and then there's stuff that's cataloged as frozen meat. So, for instance, banquet fried chicken is always frozen food. Tyson and Weaver fried chicken. Depending on what distributor you're buying from is either frozen meat or frozen food. Maybe both, maybe one each. You don't know. Steakums will be usually frozen food, sometimes frozen meat, but the uh, black box of knockoff steakums, that is always frozen meat. So there's actually a different supply chain inside the supermarket for the different types of frozen frozen meat and the frozen food cases are really blocked out and jammed there's just been so many types of french fries so much stuff done with vegetables tea dinners uh so the heavier meat stuff uh i've been waiting for it to go to the meat case and now it is so now what you showed me was a picture of a frozen case that was an open coffin case we used to call them or a well case where you had, it looked like 24 feet, including an end pack. It looked like it was 16 feet and then a four-foot end cap. Two distinctive lines, or three distinctive lines, okay? So this is, this whatever this chain supermarket is, they got they went in and they bought three distinctive lines of this product because that's what you need to really set up a big contrast display to make people think that it's not just all the same shit. You need to have three competitors out there okay uh so that's commitment okay that's uh that's a really big thing that's a supply side decision that is now going to get jammed into these stores because you're going up against meat now the space that this has taken up in the frozen food case might have been some meat frozen food frozen dinners pizzas vegetables french fries whatever okay could have been a whole bunch of different stuff uh but your profit margin for frozen meat products runs between 31 and 40 percent it's very nice it's usually 34 37 percent gross margin you need that so that you end up making a half a penny on the dollar at the end of the year after you pay the idiots that work for you and pay your gas electric bill that movement into the meat case in a typical store it looks like 
that was the frozen meat section looks like it's half of what I typically see in a Safeway where they got these a 16 footer and a 24 footer coffin case in the back aisle for the frozen meat in front of the fresh meat case. It looks like they gave up 25% of their frozen meat to this category. That's just huge. Yeah. That's not something that's normally done. Like Morningstar and Boca and th- these different soy-based frozen meats, uh, you start out giving them a shelf, then a half a door, then a whole door. Going to like a whole spread like that, literally, they gave up exactly, from what I recall from your pictures, 25% of the typical back aisle frozen meat case that's that's a huge decision that's usually it's just on a scaled a scale of decision that's usually made like frozen pizzas it was just tombstone at first that went to that went away from the typical frozen pizza recipe when they started doing like a a a pizzeria quality pizza distributors only went with tombstone first and then over decades, like every five years, they bring another one on board. And now you've got six different brands and store brands of essentially the Tombstone Pizza. But it started out with Tombstone. They'll usually go one brand just as a, as a study. We want to see how this does in real time. So there must be a huge, huge profit cut on the production end to be able to give them enough money to basically buy space on the wholesaling level. And when you see this level of space commitment, they bought space in the warehouses. They're buying SKUs or slots in the warehouses. And that's a lot of money. So this must be something with a huge amount of profit built into it, which means at some level you're going to be eating some garbage. <laughs> yeah. The, mix meat, the percentage of meat is going to continue to dwindle. No, to my knowledge, there's no meat in this stuff. Maybe there's a different line that, you guys are eating there, but this is, it's, it's a huge push. It feels like very much like social engineering. Maybe there's, maybe the profit motive is enough to explain it because this is like cheap garbage that they're Mm -hmm. growing, you know, they're cooking in vats and, um, I don't know, somehow making it look like that. But this, this store that I sent you pictures of is a small store that, it devotes most of the floor space to fresh produce and they have, they stock some of whatever, I guess, I think you call it grocery, like stuff in boxes or cans or bags or whatever. Um, but it's mostly like a produce shop and, and it does have meat and deli, uh, but it's smaller. So I like to shop there. It's got good stuff well, and it's always clean and stuff. They're buying from a wholesaler that, that really sold a lot of slots. Yeah, so so I could tell something major is going on because they have this, you know, that one meat case, and yeah, it it is just exactly twenty five percent. I walk, I kind of walked around, and the other stuff they've got in there is like frozen fish fillets, and there's some bison, and there's some, um, you know, frozen beef livers and frozen fish and stuff. So kind of the normal stuff you expect, but just it's to so break- much. To break in a new product line, to get your foot in the door in a store, typically the cost is a free fill, okay? The sales rep will come in and say, look, if you give us this end cap for a month and give us this whole 16-foot run here, okay, as permanent space, we will give you a free fill, buy it from the wholesaler, and I will write you a check for what it cost you, okay? So, yeah, I would go for that, and 
it might be something I'm just going to have to, I might not reorder. I might just take it, sell it. And if it doesn't sell, mark it down and shit can it. Who knows? Okay. It could end up being a situation like that. But a, a wholesaler buying in on three brands of this stuff without doing a test. I mean, that, that's, that's just unusual. You usually don't see that. You see one brand at a time, uh, creep in. Yeah, this they, this place does not often give samples, but I definitely have not seen it available as a sample. I'm I'm not going to eat that. That's it's uh, not what I feed my family. But I I feel that it ties in. Uh, you know, this is like the leading edge where they really do want people eating bugs. <laughs> One of the things. Get back to the slavery thing. One of the things that really made the person who thought they were going to be a servant and found that they were a slave. One of the things that made them the most better was that in the earliest contracts, the servant owner was supposed to provide his servants with meat. And they did not for the vast majority of people ate no meat. All they ate was maize. That was it. They'd sleep on the corn cobs. And uh, they'd eat the corn kernels. If you were in Maryland, you might get to eat some venison if your master was a hunter. Uh, but if you're in a tobacco plantation, uh, forget it. Uh, you're, you're eating nothing but corn. And that's basically what all these early plantations were. And that's uh, a huge so- step down. You wrote about feudalism today, or I'm not sure recently I'm catching up. But that's a huge step down from like a medieval peasant or a European villager who they might not have been eating huge amounts of meat, but they were eating animal foods. They were eating dairy, they were eating butter, and they were eating meat from time to time, and they had eggs, and they had, you know, they had a decent diet. It took a long time under agriculture to build that quality of diet back up to where, you know, something comparable with a hunter-gatherer. And certainly they suffered hunger and famines and whatever. But in those villages where they had a self-sustaining agricultural economy, the diet was good because you actually, ecologically, you need all those elements for a healthy ecology. You need animals that eat grass for the grass to grow and so on. Yeah, they just weren't allowed to eat uh, the, the Lord's animals. Right, the game, the wild game. But it's it's an important trend to watch. I find it disgusting, and I love doing uh, grocery <laughs> grocery well, topics well, with you. Well, all those guys that are into those two scarecrow chicks, uh, <laughs> they should go out and you should buy that uh, plant-based meat. Okay. Yeah, that will uh, right. help you cope with that. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I mean, I guess there's maybe there's some level of curiosity, but, you know, that's just not – that's just not what what you should be eating and what hopefully the kernel will get off that um, idea well, this is quick. 50% beef and 50% like this other shit like the quinoa and stuff like that yeah and well, I, that's... I see where that's really going to make an inroad because all they got to do is find a way to keep the flavors stable and they can continue to cut the meat out alright yeah you know so yeah I did eat some yeah it was okay and if it was cheap if I could get a read on the carbs, I would buy it. I haven't been watching my my carbs since I've been living here. I've been eating what they eat, I, and I've just been trying to make up for it by more activity. 
uh, and just not eating the, the bread. Uh, so I'll start losing weight when I get down in Portland and start eating out of the dollar store again. Oh, I don't like that. I've just been invited up to the big house. Okay. All right. Uh, all the chores today. I fed the chickens. I watered the chickens. Okay. Oh. Uh, I, I gathered the eggs. I did the firewood. I swept the house. Wow. Uh, Adrian, I did the dishes, and the mistress must be pleased because she just uh, texted me to come up to the big house to have beef stew there, Aww. making uh, beef roast. How okay. nice. All right. Well, thank you for taping with me, and I'm very sorry that I lost 40 minutes of podcast. Oh, that's all. That's all right.
comes out yonder Through the traffic and the people Boy, it really makes me wonder How we enjoy fucking people over You used to be 